0: 7 billion
1: people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. April, I would be curious to know how many of our listeners like
0: myself, and I'm sure you wait every year with bated breath for New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art to announce their summer fashion exhibition. Paired with the highly anticipated Met Gala, which marks the exhibition's debut, it is guaranteed to be a blockbuster hit, and this year's exhibition is no exception.
1: And Cass says, is, because if you have not already seen the show, you still have time to see Heavenly Bodies, Fashion and the Catholic Imagination, which is on view until October 8th. And Cassidy and I have both had the pleasure of seeing it together, and it is stunning. Absolutely stunning and it's curated by Andrew Bolton and the
0: exhibition explores the myriad of ways that Catholicism specifically has influenced fashion over the years and be it a quite literal interpretation or one of the more symbolic variety this exhibition makes very clear that this is an influence that has had a far-reaching effect on fashion designers for decades
1: yeah And the many ways in which fashion has engaged with the Catholic faith is evident in more than 150 ensembles dating from the early 20th century to today. And in an incredibly rare collaboration, the Vatican itself loaned 40 ecclesiastical pieces from the Sistine Chapel sacristy. Dating from the 18th to the early 21st centuries, these pieces, which range from jewelry to papal vestments, are feats of technical mastery and artistry. And the embroidery on some of these garments is mind-blowing. I, I spent at so least incredible. a half an hour with like my face practically pressed up to the glass looking at some of these Me too. pieces. <laughs> Absolutely beautiful.
0: And another collaboration in the exhibition is between the CI, a.k.a. the Costume Institute, uh, and the Department of Medieval Art and the Cloisters. And April, I especially love these interdepartmental exhibitions. The museum uh, did something similar in 2015 with uh, China Through the Looking Glass, in which they similarly interspersed fashionable garments and accessories throughout departments of the museum not usually specific to fashion.
1: Yeah, agreed. And by exhibiting fashion pieces within the Byzantine and medieval art galleries at the Met Museum and also uptown in the Cloisters, Heavenly Bodies is presenting this powerful conversation between medieval religious art and the fashions that it ultimately inspired. I mean, there's a John Galliano for Dior dress in the Cloisters, which is mounted horizontally, nestled between two 12th century sarcophagi. It's incredible. beautiful.
0: And what about that standalone 1967 Balenciaga wedding dress? It's a showstopper. It's in prayer at the Fuente Duena, apse at the cloisters. The 12th century apse, which is essentially a recess topped with the domed ceiling, was built in Spain but transported to the cloisters in the 1940s. And if our listeners have never made a trip up to the cloisters, this is an absolute must. April and I went together. It is so enchanting.
1: Yeah, so just a little bit more about the Cloisters. It's it's a museum in northern Manhattan, which is dedicated specifically to the art, architecture, and gardens of medieval Europe. And the museum itself was built to resemble the medieval collection that it houses, but in many instances, it is even comprised of the actual medieval era architecture that, like Cass mentioned, the Spanish apse was originally from Europe, but then it was disassembled, And relocated and reassembled in New York City comprising the Cloisters. Um, It's part of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, um, actually. I don't know if everybody knows that. And right now, additionally, it is full of fashion. And this is really a -a once-in-a-lifetime exhibition. It
0: really is. And while the exhibition is certainly a testament to the beauty of the relationship between fashion and Catholicism, it is also a reflection of the talents of one amazing group of individuals in particular who are tasked with bringing this exhibition to life. And I am specifically referring to the team responsible for ensuring the proper care, preservation, and display of the garments we all love and admire. The Fashion Conservation Team, in fact, led by Sarah Scuturo.
1: And we have the distinct pleasure of having her here with us today in part one of a two-part episode. That's right.
0: The second bonus episode will air in
1: just two days, so stay tuned.
0: Sarah, welcome to Dress. Yes, Sarah, welcome. Thank you. I'm so
2: pleased to have the opportunity to share a bit about fashion conservation with you today.
0: First, I am hoping you can tell us a little bit more about your background. What was the path that led you to fashion conservation? Because it was in no way a singular pursuit, considering you're also a curator, published author, a teacher. Sure,
2: sure, yeah. Uh, I think my my path to becoming a a fashion conservator is uh, very much a combination of a lot of luck and hard work and a bit of hustle. Um, I didn't even really know what art conservation was until I was in my late 20s, actually.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Uh, At the time, I was living in New York, working at an educational nonprofit, and I was taking continuing ed classes in pattern making and tailoring at the Fashion Institute of Technology. And it was there that I came across their graduate program in fashion and textile studies, which is, of course, the same program that you and April um, went to. Yes. <laughs> and uh, yeah, the program required applicants to have art history, chemistry, and a foreign language as prerequisites. Mm-hmm. And luckily, I, I had all three since I've always been interested in all of those areas. And in fact, the the program ended up being exactly what I had been looking for, even at the time I had no idea what I was looking for. Um, In a way, I feel as if the program found me rather than the other way around.
0: I know. I feel the exact same way about that program. It's really amazing.
2: It was really, um, it just changed my life. Um, So once I finished the program in 2006, you know, I I began hustling quite a bit, to be honest. Uh, I knew that finding a full-time permanent job in this field might not happen right away. You know, I I had confidence it would happen, but I knew I I would have to work to get there. And I was and I still am interested in all aspects of our field, including archiving, curating, writing and teaching. Um, And so I took this opportunity to do a little bit of each and, you know, experiment and while I enjoyed all of these areas and uh, could actually see myself going into them as alternate professions, mm-hmm. you know, conservation seemed to stick the most with me. And it's it's really because I I love the philosophical and ethical quandaries conservation gives rise to. I love that it relies on hardcore science, art history, and particularly in love with the access to objects that the profession enables. So um once I decided conservation was it for me, I ended up working as a contractor at the Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum in the textile lab of Lucy Commoner. Uh, she's now retired, but she is one of the most well-respected conservators that I know of. And she advocated for uh, preventive conservation, which is a type of conservation that aims to prevent damage to artwork through proper storage techniques. and she actually ended up developing a lot of the textile storage techniques that museums today use, including here uh, at the Met. Wow. So I was really lucky that I had the opportunity to apprentice under her and really learn these core skills. Um, so I worked there for six years, and then the position as the head conservator of the Costume Institute opened up. And you know, at first, I didn't apply as the CI was looking for someone with almost twice the experience I had. And, and frankly, I was scared. I mean, who was I to think I could ever be in this position, you know?
0: (laughs) Yeah.
2: Um, But I I had two friends there, um, or here now, since that's where I am. Um, Shannon Bell Price, she's now a high-level administrator at Parsons, and Amanda Garfinkel, who's now a curator here at the CI. And so they both encouraged me to apply. And they helped bring my application to the attention of Harold Coda, who was then the curator in charge. And so once I did apply, the the museum brought me in immediately, actually. And they brought me in four times to meet oh with my various gosh. people. <laughs> in, yeah, including. Including our current curator in charge, Andrew Bolton, and I even had an interview with the director's office. Oh wow! And then, yeah, they finally offered me the position, which was a really good thing, because by that time, I had totally run out of interview outfits. And <laughs> I was
0: just like, okay,
2: <laughs> I'm either going to get this or not. <laughs> oh,
0: yeah. And you had a lot of very excited FIT alum when we found out you got yeah. this job. Yeah. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs>
2: um, it was funny, because, you know, Harold at the time, Kept mentioning that he liked how uh, supple my mind was, which might sound a bit funny, Um, but (laughs) he was talking about how I do have a foot in both the curatorial and conservation realms and that, you know, I, I feel like I can translate between them. And I hope that that makes me a better collaborator when I'm working with my curatorial colleagues, because I do think it makes me more sympathetic to what they're trying to accomplish. Mm
0: -hmm. And that's such a cool aspect of that FIT program that we all mm-hmm. uh, espouse on Dressed is that you, there's two tracks. There's the curatorial and the conservation. But before you kind of go off in those two areas, you get to explore both. And like you said, it makes you such a more well-rounded um, historian, curator, conservator, whatever you choose to do. so
2: I totally agree. I think it makes you really sympathetic and um, a much better holistic professional in the field. It, it was a great program for me.
0: Absolutely. And so for many years, the role of the fashion conservator and the field of fashion conservation fell under the umbrella of quote-unquote textile conservation. So you have personally worked very hard to make your field stand out as its own distinctive entity. Can you please tell us the differences between a fashion conservator and a textile conservator? And why are these distinctions important to make?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, I've been thinking about this for a while, uh, especially since my approach for Cooper Hewitt's textile collection um, was very different than the approach I'm expected to take here for the CI's fashion collection. Mm -hmm. I actually explored this topic in a paper that I wrote for one of my PhD classes, and then I presented a version of the paper last year at the International Council of Museums Triennial Conservation Conference in Denmark. Um, where it it provoked a lot of comment, some positive and some negative, uh, from my conservation colleagues. And, um, you know, I see three main differences between fashion and textile conservation. Uh, First, and most obviously, uh, the materiality of fashion includes a lot more than just textiles. For example, you know, I can be faced with anything from explosive plastics like cellulose nitrate, to decaying animal parts um, and inorganic materials like ceramics and metals, which is very different from just flat textiles.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: A second reason is that unlike textiles, which have a widely varying scale from small fragments to huge tapestries, uh, fashion always relates in some way to the human body. Mm -hmm. And so often must be shown in the third dimension rather than flat in order to be rendered as it was intended. And lastly, and this was the most contested aspect, I am encouraging conservators to assess how they might manifest the values of fashion, which arguably rest on issues like temporality, identity, ephemerality, and aesthetics. How do they manifest that within their conservation treatments or mounting practice? Mm -hmm. Um, So this last point essentially privileges the context in which the fashionable object was created and used and seeks to recognize the inherent values it thus holds. And to be honest, this can be quite discomforting because um, once you start reflecting on what that means, you know, trying to conserve fashion, which is ephemeral, which is temporal, it's a total paradox, right? Mm -hmm. And so how do you as a conservator reconcile that? or, Or can you? And, you know, I'm not claiming to know the answers, I'm not claiming to have invented the field of fashion conservation, um, but I do think I am one of the first to articulate a distinct approach to the conservation of fashion that identifies it as a kind of object that is fundamentally different from textiles and that has its own set of values. And you know, I am asking conservators to look towards these inherent values in order to inform their actions.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because the field of fashion studies in general, be it curatorial or conservation, people have fought for years to validate these as respected fields of scholarly pursuit. So, mm-hmm. you know, you're really doing groundbreaking research and um Making really valid points. And so I kind of, I guess it's kind of expected that people would push back a little bit before it becomes um, common knowledge and an accepted yeah. way um, of doing things. And so, as you're talking about now, the methodologies used in conservation are ever evolving, thanks to people like yourself, and they're constantly being redefined. So, what are the biggest ways that theories and methodologies in fashion conservation have changed over the years? Um, you can still find images on the METS website, for instance, of men and women modeling historic pieces of clothing. <laughs> oh, they're really yeah. entertaining, but it always makes you kind of cringe to know that yeah. that's an 1890s worth gown or, you know.
2: <laughs> yeah, it is. It is pretty cringeworthy, but yeah. it, it's also important information. Whenever I I do see that, I actually um, take a note and we try and put that into our database so that we have That information Mm -hmm. um, at hand. But to go to your question, you know, the the change in theories and methodologies within fashion conservation, you know, mirrors the change within the conservation profession at large, Mm -hmm. um, for which is a quite young profession. Uh, So for example, in the early to mid-20th century, most conservators or they were often called restorers then, they entered the field through their own craft-based or artistic practice, and they often did not have formal training. But by mid-century, you start seeing the influence of the scientific paradigm begin to increase in importance. Mm-hmm. And so by the 1980s, you know, almost all conservators entering the field had to have some sort of formal university education that included chemistry. You could argue that that shift to some degree has downplayed the role of artistry and craft within conservation. It's always a constant, you know, push and pull between these, these areas.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: By the last quarter of the 20th century, there was an increased level of professionalization within conservation that really has codified a specific set of practices that are um, grounded in ethics and science um but you know the profession it continues to evolve which i love it makes it really exciting and there's always some new discussion happening but now for fashion conservation you know it did not necessarily develop in a consistent or linear manner um especially because you know fashion is very contested as to whether (laughs) it is art or something else um And in fact, I recall, you know, Harold Cota, he talked about how he, when he first started at the CI as a conservation intern, he worked under a woman named Elizabeth Lawrence, who at the time had the title Master Restorer. And um, she worked close with Stella Blum and Diana Vreeland during the 70s and into the 80s. And in fact, she could be considered the first official conservator of the CI. But but what Harold was recalling is that, you know, he was essentially roped into doing conservation work, even though he did not have any professional training. And in fact, most of the conservation back then was done by non-professionally trained volunteers. And so that is something that would never happen today.
0: Absolutely not.
2: (laughs) Uh, I do take some pre program interns, but we really rely on a certain set of You know, educational um, skill sets. But as you had mentioned in your question, you know, one of the biggest changes that occurred within the last few decades was this prohibition of wearing costume artifacts that are held in collections. And this prohibition specifically came about in 1986 as a result of a resolution passed by the Costume Society of America and also by a set of guidelines established by ICOM's Costume Committee. So at that time, there was this united and international effort to stop these occurrences from happening because it was recognized that it was a very damaging practice. And so I would say since then, you know, it's definitely been taboo to even consider placing a historic garment on a living person. Mm -hmm. And. I do see this change, this kind of international effort as a key moment in which the field of fashion conservation begins to solidify as its own distinct field with its own set of acceptable and unacceptable practices.
0: Well, fast forward to today, 2018, And we are going to be using the museum's current exhibition, Heavenly Bodies, to gain more insight into the field of fashion conservation and the multitude of factors that go into the mounting of an exhibition. As with any exhibition, the curator, in this case, Andrew Bolton, he comes up with an exhibition topic years in advance, and then he goes about selecting the pieces he would like to use. And what I always find incredibly fascinating is that these pieces can come from the Met's collection, but they can also come from all over the world, from museums fashion houses, private collections. Mm -hmm. So once these objects are selected and the approvals are in the works or processed, uh, it's then up to your team to begin the process of what you refer to as the rematerializing of an object. And I like to think of this and imagine you and your team bringing these pieces (laughs) to life. It's such a wonderful (laughs) image to have. (laughs) Um, Yeah. (laughs) Because they're not stored exhibition ready. I mean, with the exception of Charles James gowns that I've seen stored, um, you know, but they're flat or um, st- stored in various ways. So, and they're not always in a condition that can be displayed. So I'm hoping you can please speak to your team's vital role in the reading of these pieces for display and why it is incredibly integral to the success of any exhibition.
2: Yeah, certainly. Well, um, first... Our turnaround time for our exhibitions is not years, like other typical museum exhibits. Um, in fact, we have much more like months, and so we are <laughs> embarking on huge projects oh uh, with a timeline much more akin to fashion's fast cycle. It's it's really it's incredibly fast paced. Um, so we you know we never have enough time as we would like or need. <laughs> To holistically approach the treatment for objects in our collection. Mm-hmm. Um, however, you know, with that said, you can break down our process of what I call rematerialization into two main areas, which are treatments and mannequin dressing. Um, So first, uh, for treatments, our main goal is to ensure that the objects selected for exhibition are in good and stable condition and can be safely displayed on mannequins in a manner that honors the designer's original intentions sounds easier than it really is.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um,
2: <laughs> so our very first step is to analyze an object through performing a condition report that documents all of the object's damages and imperfections. Uh, we do this so that we can understand what is happening t- with the object. Mm-hmm. We can anticipate what might happen to it if it is placed onto a mannequin and put on display for several months. So this is where Our scientific knowledge of how materials age and perform under forces like gravity, as well as our technical understanding of fabric and garment construction come into play. Mm -hmm. So if we think that a garment cannot be displayed safely and beautifully, then we will execute a treatment to repair any aesthetic damage or stabilize weak areas. We often must break this work into two campaigns, um, or kind of two cycles, Mm -hmm. since we often have to prepare the objects quickly for photography for the exhibition catalog, which usually occurs way in advance of the actual exhibition installation. So first, we carry out absolutely essential repairs to ensure that an object can be mounted safely onto a mannequin for photography. Um, at this time, we might you know, address some distracting issues like wrinkles, but we're really focusing on the object's stability and making it safe. Not everybody realizes, I mean, I know you do, that um, mm-hmm. when you put an object uh, on a mannequin, you're putting it at risk. And that is actually a moment where a lot of damage can occur to the object if you're not very careful. So after the photography occurs, we will then sometimes return to the object and fix remaining damages and aesthetic flaws or add some sort of stabilization mechanism to ensure an object's safety while on display for a period of several months. We always try to find a solution so that our curator is able to display the object they have selected for their narrative. And Mm -hmm. I think that it's really only in a small number of cases do we feel were completely unable to address an object with satisfactory um, aesthetic and ethical results. Mm-hmm. So, the second part, you know, that's the first part treatments. The second part is rematerializing the object through your mannequin dressing. And I have to say, I am so fortunate that I work with some of the best mannequin dressers in the world. The CI's primary dresser is Joyce Fung. She has been leading the dressing of all of our exhibitions since our 2011 Savage Beauty exhibition. She excels at not only quickly mounting objects, but also making sure they look absolutely exquisite. I mean, she has an incredible eye and sensitivity um, it's just a joy to see her at work. So for the CI, you know, it's not just about making sure the object is mounted safely. It's also making sure it looks fashionable and beautiful, Yeah, <laughs> which is a goal that combines, you know, both curatorial and conservation concerns. And so Joyce kind of fits this intersection between these two areas. Joyce achieves this and the curators achieve this kind of lifelike fashionability in different ways. You know, it can be done through styling with props or wigs um, or mannequin's gestures or making sure the, you know, ensemble is puffed or zhuzhed properly yeah. <laughs> so it doesn't look deflated and sad. Or maybe we might even, you know, redistribute a bit of the padding so that the mannequin shape appears closer to the fashionable ideal dare I say that. <laughs> so, you know, Joyce is our primary dresser. However, all the conservators uh, in the department do participate in dressing, as do many of our, um, on our collections and curatorial teams. As you know, it's a highly specialized skill set. I mean, we all took the June Bovee's mannequin dressing class.
0: <laughs> yes, we
2: did, <laughs> which was so fun. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Super fun. Really great. Um, It provided a great foundation, but um, I do think that, you know, being here and being able to have Joyce's expertise and gentle suggestions to guide us in the dressing has really um, elevated our practice. So very, very happy to work with her.
0: And I think this conversation is just super exciting and so cool because I don't think a lot of people are going to realize that these are jobs that you can have yes so I think (laughs) we're going to be inspiring a lot of people because this is just it's it's very cool and it's a very specialized field but um it's just it's just wonderful and I just also want to give a shout out to the Met at Met Costume Institute um Instagram where you can see Sarah and Sarah's team and all of these behind the scene images which is just fascinating and it's so cool.
2: Yeah, we're really thrilled to show, uh, be able to share that with everybody.
0: Having seen the show, I would like to say that you and your team's hard work really shows. But in the case of conservation... <laughs> The greatest compliment is to not have seen any of your work at all. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally. And um, I was so lucky that you I was actually able to walk through the exhibition with you. And when we were taking the tour, you said to me, conservation is only successful if you do not notice the work. So can you speak to this goal of invisibility in your field?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, you know, our ultimate goal is to make sure our public experiences the object as its maker intended it to be. You know, without seeing any evidence of conservation intervention, um, although of course, you know, the hand of the conservator might very well be there. And always, to a trained eye, our interventions are completely recognizable. You know, we're not yeah. trying to fool anybody. Yeah. <laughs> but to you know, to our public, the the piece reads as an authentic whole, mm-hmm. and only the object's essence comes through. Now, of course, that's easy to say and not always easy to execute. But um, we do like to think that conservation is an objective process, but, you know, it's really not. The conservation treatment depends on many things, including Mm -hmm. the conservator's abilities, knowledge, and tastes, as well as the curator's wishes. For me, there is some discomfort in our field with the idea of restoration, which is when the conservator recreates a damaged or missing part of an object. In this instance, we have the conservator acting as a de facto creator. Mm -hmm. Um, But I feel that a well-considered, well-documented, and well-executed restoration treatment should be an option in some instances,
0: Mm
2: -hmm. especially if you can find a way to make it reversible or at least retreatable. But to be honest, it's still a contested matter. I mean, what is more ethical? Burying an object in an archive because it has a devastating condition issue that renders it completely unexhibitable, which therefore cuts off public access to it. Mm -hmm. Or carrying out a thoughtful and sensitive treatment so that the object is brought back to life and can now be shared with our public. Mm -hmm. Um, You might say the latter.
0: I'm going to go with the latter.
2: (laughs) If this restoration results in an object with at least 25% or say 50% or even 75% new material, So, you know, at what point does a restoration become unethical and at what point does the object stop being its authentic self? You know, whatever that means. I mean, that is a whole other loaded question. But these are, you know, questions we're always asking ourselves and Mm -hmm. there's no one answer. We don't carry out restorations lightly. Instead, we research historic techniques and materials. We perform analytical tests. We investigate the art historical context in order to develop a plan. And then before we do anything, we share this plan with all of the stakeholders, especially our curators, mm-hmm. in order to get feedback and to obtain consensus about a way forward. So it's it's always a push and a pull, and it's always um, a really well-thought-out discussion.
0: And in this show in particular, there are over 150 pieces, and that does not include the 40 on loan from the Vatican. And I know that there are many factors, uh, as we've discussed, to consider once a garment has been selected to use in an exhibition. And for instance, one of my favorite pieces in this exhibition was also one of the oldest fashion pieces that um, is on display. And that was this 1930, or is, I should say, this 1939 dinner dress by Jean Levin. And Mm -hmm. so are there differences, Sarah, in how you and your team handle this almost 80-year-old garment um, versus, say, a 300-year-old piece from the Vatican or a Valentino evening dress from last collection, 2017,
2: 18? Uh, it's impossible to say yes, and it, it's impossible to say no. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, every piece that comes in on loan receives what you might call the white glove treatment. Um, although, to be honest, most of us in the lab, we wear fashionable black nitrile gloves. We don't wear white gloves. <laughs> but um In short, we treat every incoming loan as we would an object from our own collection. Um, So what that means is, you know, loaned objects are carefully unpacked. They're tagged, documented, inspected, and stored in our state-of-the-art facility until they're ready to go on to display. Uh, We take photographs of everything, including how the object was packed and the condition in which it arrived. And we monitor all of the environments in which the object might be placed. Some museums and design houses send representatives who are called couriers. Uh, These couriers handle their own objects, uh, including dressing them, so we normally don't handle them Mm -hmm. if they send a courier. However, our conservation team provides support and assistance as needed, um, and we ensure that our working environment is as professional, helpful, and safe as it can be. So really, regardless of the age of a garment, Mm -hmm. we look towards its condition, how it's made what it's made from, and its specific needs in order to understand how best to handle it. So like much in conservation, there's never a standard answer. Um, It's always a customized approach for each object.
0: Wow. And we talked about the rematerializing of these pieces earlier, and mannequin dressing um, is incredibly integral to this process. These mannequins are all dressed by an installation team. You talked about your fantastic leader earlier, and it's done in an installation office before being transported and put on display. Can you speak to some of the challenges that were encountered with dressing mannequins for this show in particular? Because what immediately comes to mind is one of the first things you see is the rows of Versace and Dolce & Gabbana dresses that are Mm -hmm. high, high above your head. Um, Mm -hmm. And then there's also these two incredible mannequins that are displayed horizontally in cases. And that is, I've actually honestly never seen anything like that. Um, before yeah
2: yeah us uh, us either (laughs) yeah (laughs) um actually uh the mannequins that were laying down were installed by our conservator glenn peterson who is um i think one of the best conservators in the world for fashion um as well as our team of installers from our objects conservation department and at first we we honestly questioned Uh, if we would be able to install these mannequins uh, laying down safely and beautifully. And it took a while, but through Glenn's and the installer's creativity and their excellent hand skills and persistence, you know, it all came together. And I think they're two of my favorite um, pieces in the entire exhibition. I really love their display. For the mannequins that are installed up high on the pedestals, (laughs) they were placed there by our technician, Michael Downer, um, who has been with the department for decades. I mean, he's truly a master mannequin wrangler. I mean, he has installed many thousands of mannequins in his career here at the Costume Institute. So for those specific mannequins, the credit really has to go to him Mm -hmm. and our team of riggers and other technicians, as well as other colleagues throughout the museum, like our project manager, Lauren Beerley. What we did is we actually did a dry run where we tested installing a mannequin on a high pedestal in the space before the museum opened a few months before the exhibition. And we did this not only to find, you know, the perfect safe process to get Mm -hmm. the objects up there, but also to determine the height of the poles. Um, One thing that um, conservation was concerned about is that we wanted the objects to be readable by our public. We wanted it to be this really um, aha, wonderful moment. Mm -hmm. But because the galleries are so tight and they weren't going to be in vitrines, we didn't want the pieces to be in touch distance, you know, we didn't want our audience to be able to get too close to them, Mm -hmm. um, which can be dangerous for both people and the art. So this dry one was super critical and and it ended up being very successful um, so that when it came time for the actual mannequin installation, it went very quickly. I mean, in a matter of minutes, it was so surprising. It was like this most beautifully choreographed ballet. Um, One minute there was no mannequin there and the next minute there was this incredible inviting display, you know, this incredible line of mannequins. Gives
0: me chills. So, yeah,
2: it was really, it was really special, you know. And in fact, you know, without this huge behind-the-scenes team, which includes installers, mannequin dressers, technicians, collection staff, project managers, designers, registrars, production and building staff, development, administration, and of course us, the conservators. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the whole the whole exhibition process would simply fall apart. So it's it's a joy to be able to work with such a, a wonderful and talented team here at the museum.
0: Yeah, it's really, really cool. And like you said, all of these different jobs um, that I just don't think, you go to a museum exhibition and you just, I think the average person just doesn't think about that. Or, or um, you know, you're really enjoying experiencing the work that's displayed. But I think the display of fashion more than any other um, field and just so much goes into getting that one garment out there. Totally. And, you know, how that garment is dressed on a mannequin is incredibly important to the garment's protection, but also to is the mannequin that it's dressed on Mm -hmm. and any material that comes into contact with that dress. For instance, those gorgeous wigs by Shai Ashwell, there's so many different styles, shapes, colors, uh, but you and, and he actually had to work quite closely together and how so?
2: Yeah. Oh, he was so much fun to work with. Um, My colleague, uh, Melissa Huber, who's a curator here at the CI, uh, she helped initiate the discussion between Shai and me about how best to protect the objects while still achieving the artistic result that he, Andrew, and Melissa wanted with the wigs. So what that meant was that for every wig Shy proposed, he had to pass the materials by me for approval. This included the kind of hair, the type of cap that the hair was woven into, and of course all of the hair products. Now, in a normal exhibition process, samples of each of these materials would go to our Department of Scientific Research many months in advance for rigorous testing to determine whether or not the materials would be harmful when placed nearby or in contact with an object. But, you know, we simply didn't have enough time. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) In
2: fact, the idea for custom wigs was decided incredibly late in the process. Uh, So literally, as Shai was making a wig, he would send me a photograph of the products he was using. Uh, then our research fellow, Marina Hayes, would gather a list of the ingredients in the products. We would send this list to our scientists, Eric Breitong and Catherine Stevens, who would let us know if anything was a major issue. And then I would have to use this information and make a call whether or not Shai could use these products. Meanwhile, this process is going on while he's making the wig still. Yeah. So it was a case by case decision based upon the kinds of materials that were in the wig, whether or not the object was displayed in a vitrine, because if it's in a vitrine, you know, the off gassing will be held in an enclosed environment, which could exacerbate any damage, or if the wig would actually touch the object or not. So this process happened incredibly quickly with approvals or requests for changes being communicated back to him in only a few hours. So if a wig ended up touching a garment and it did have a hair product on it that we didn't like, then we placed mylar barriers underneath the hair so that nothing is actually touching the artwork.
0: Again, a hidden element you do not see, but so fascinating.
2: Yeah, I mean... It's fascinating. I mean, this is definitely not an example of normal museum practice, um, but it is a real-life scenario showing Mm -hmm. how standard conservation protocols do not always fit into the timeline of the kinds of shows we do here at the CII. Mm -hmm. Our conservation team always has to find a way to enact best practice while still remaining realistic flexible and responsive and, you know, open to this idea that we are all in it together to create this amazing blockbuster, spectacular exhibition. But, you know, with every one of these kinds of challenges, I I do try to find an opportunity. And so in this case, we now have the opportunity to develop a list of standard chemicals and products that are used in the styling of wigs, and hair pieces. And we can have these chemicals tested by our scientists so that we have this kind of information more readily at our disposal whenever we need it next. Oh,
0: there's so much to consider. And Mm -hmm. display materials that come into direct contact with objects They're not even the only potentially hazardous factors that Sarah and her team must consider when dressing and displaying garments. In fact, many of these dangers are invisible to the human eye, making them that much harder to detect. So light, for instance, can irreparably harm a garment, as can temperature, moisture, any number of environmental elements. Sarah, are there different factors to consider when putting a garment on display in an exhibition versus, say, putting it into storage long term?
2: Oh, definitely. Um, You know, our conservation team seeks to always ensure that most of the same conditions occur during display as we have in our storage. But of course, that's not always possible. Uh, For example, we like to protect our objects from dust. But in general, there is a desire in fashion exhibitions to see garments out in the open without vitrines. Um, you know, this approach it creates an immediacy and a connection with the audience. Mm-hmm. And although um, you know it's it's not ideal from a preservation perspective, because dust can be very damaging. It contains compounds that both physically and chemically uh, can harm fabrics, and it also can make them look pretty bad, you know, unsightly if they're getting really dusty, although that never happens to ours because we take care of them. (laughs) But, (laughs) you know, we also tend to have a curious public who like to touch objects. So we try to make sure objects are at least an arm's length out of reach, although that is not always possible.
0: Do you think that people want to touch garments because why do you think that is? Because to me, is it something about the fact that It's a familiar and a tactile piece that everyone can relate to that makes people want to touch it?
2: Definitely. I think people feel a comfort with it. And I mean, clothing is incredibly tactile and soft and supple or hard and rigid. And why not? I mean, I I totally get their desire to want to touch it. However, it's my job to try to avoid that from happening. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, you know. so another major difference between storage and exhibition is, of course, light exposure. Uh, we store our objects in the dark, but when on display, you, of course, need to have some sort of light on them in order to see them. Uh, the problem is that light exposure is cumulative. And what that means is that all light, regardless of the level, even low light, will do irreversible damage to the art. It's a complete myth that you can display an object and then allow it to, quote unquote, rest in darkened storage. Frankly, I don't like that term when people use it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it implies that the object can somehow like, take a nap and rejuvenate itself before being <laughs> displayed again. And that's totally impossible. You know, Light causes permanent, irreversible damage. However, you know, we do understand you need light to see an object. And if an object is going to be brought out onto display, you're already um, risking it through the mannequin dressing process, through whatever treatments you might've done. You know, you're already doing so much to it. Why not give it a little bit of light so that it really looks beautiful and glorious? Um, And I think we've been able to find really beautiful solutions that both incorporate conservation concerns of having low enough light levels with um, the really artistic element that we want to have. Um, And you can see this in our Heavenly Bodies exhibition, especially up at the Cloisters, Mm -hmm. where we have the iconic one-seam wedding dress by Balenciaga, basking in this beautiful light that's emanating from an arched window in the apse of the Fuente Duena Chapel. And the light coming through the window is actually, it's a projection, and um, it is too high to safely display the object. You know, it needed to be a really dramatic high light level to get this kind of um, arched window shape on the floor. But What we were able to do is we worked with uh, the exhibition's designers, Diller, Scofidia, and Renfro. And because it's a projection um, and digitally rendered, we were able to mask out the silhouette of the garment once it was installed and displayed. And then replace that masked area with museum-appropriate lighting, which is below five-foot candles. So nobody actually sees that we have appropriate light on the Balenciaga Object, but super bright light in the kind of window shape on the floor. Wow! And we also have this effect in the medieval galleries with the um, priest, cardinal, and pope.
0: That is so cool. You would never know. One of my favorite pieces on view in the exhibit are these wooden wings by the late great Alexander McQueen. We talked about the challenges of environmental elements, but what about the challenges posed by the garments themselves? Because wood is especially susceptible to warping, but it can also get quite brittle over time.
2: Yeah, our McQueen wings are absolutely fantastic, um, but they are completely scary. (laughs) (laughs) Um, They were remade for the Savage Beauty exhibition in 2011, at which time the Custom Institute acquired them. Uh, Initially, uh, we thought that the wings were made out of fresh balsa wood, which has a tendency to shrink and become embrittled quite rapidly as it ages. This would have been a major problem since the wings actually flatten out quite a lot when not mounted. Uh, So they remain in this flat shape and storage Mm -hmm. and then have to be significantly pulled and bent into their beautiful arched shape through securing the buckles at the back of the mannequin. And we were really nervous before attempting to dress this because uh, they had been in storage for several years, and we didn't know if they might crack or break because they had dried out too much. I had even contemplated storing the wings in a microclimate Mm -hmm. at a relative humidity of about 60%, which would have discouraged desiccation, um, made the wood more supple, but yet, of course, mold wouldn't have started growing. And so that could have been one solution. However, um, and this is something I truly love about the Met. I was able to discuss the wings with an objects conservator, Daniel Hausdorff, and he confirmed that they were actually made out of birch aircraft plywood, which is a much more forgiving material. Um, It's actually intended to be bent and placed under strain, uh, which was a great relief (laughs) for me. Um, So with Daniel's watchful eye and um, you know Joyce's leadership a team of us uh, gathered together and we were able to successfully and safely dress the wings and I think you know this example exemplifies not only the unorthodox materials that fashion conservators have to deal with Mm -hmm. but the truly team approach that is required to mount the kinds of exhibitions that we do
0: yeah. And I love fashion. Absolutely. And you guys did an incredible job with all of these fashion pieces. But in my opinion, the star pieces on display in this exhibition are the items on loan in the Vatican. They're just exceptional in their beauty and we don't end craftsmanship and we don't really get always get an opportunity to see pieces like this up close. We will hear more about your work with these spectacular pieces, including your trip to the epicenter of the Roman Catholic Church and faith after a brief sponsor break. So the Balenciaga gown at the Cloisters um, was one particular challenge that you guys geniusly solved that was posed by this exhibition specifically, but there are also numerous pieces of clothing on display outside of the Cloisters, um, for instance. Also, there's those Valentino capes in the skylights. <laughs> yeah,
2: the Cloisters was a challenge for sure. Um, you know, uh, it wasn't ideal, but I think we, we did a very good job of making it work um, as best we could. So the the two main challenges to exhibiting fashion in this location stem actually from elements that make the cloisters the incredibly special place it is. Um, so the first challenge is the light that pours in from all of the windows and skylights. And the second challenge is the proximity of the outdoors to the galleries, which affects the environment. And also, of course, some of the galleries are actually outside. Um, so uh, first, you know, we have some absolutely exquisite pieces by Valentino in a gallery called the St. Guillaume Cloister. I'm sure you've seen photos of these two mannequins dramatically dressed in floor-length black robes and placed up high on pedestals. Well, unfortunately, You know, the gallery has only skylights as a ceiling, which let in a ton of natural light. So in order to display the pieces there, we got permission from Pier Paolo Piccioli. Uh, he's the creative director of Valentino. And we are so fortunate that uh, Andrew Bolton, our curator in charge, has such a great relationship with designers um, like um, Pier Paolo. And we were lucky that he was able to discuss the display with him. And Pier Paolo was able to see you know, the aesthetic potential that this sort of display held. Um, But, you know, to be frank, it's still not a conservation-appropriate space for displaying fashion. There is some UV filtration, so there is some protection of damage at a polymeric level. However, the visible light will cause the black color of the garments to fade. Like I mentioned before, we always try to find opportunities in less than ideal display situations. Mm -hmm. So for this gallery in particular, the conservators, including my colleague Christopher Matza, we're carrying out real-time research including monitoring the actual lighting levels. We're performing real-time fading experiments using blue world standard strips. And we're also measuring and analyzing the quantifiable change in color on the garments themselves that occurs over the course of the exhibition through the use of a spectrophotometer. Um, so we hope to gather data that demonstrates both qualitatively and quantitatively uh, the fact that light does damage fashion. The Cloisters is so special that we were able to enact some unusual solutions to, like, coming in from the windows. Uh, my favorite one is in one gallery, the Glass Gallery. We were able to work with uh, the Cloisters' senior curator, Barbara Bain and their managing horticulturist, Caleb Leach. He planted fast-growing hops in the garden, which were then trellised over the portico to create more shade and to actually blackout light coming into the gallery. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. <laughs> so it was, it's awesome. It's really cool. A last conservation issue is of course the objects that are shown in the vitrines in the outdoor areas of the cloisters. This is not usually done because of the dramatic swings in temperature and humidity Um, that can have a damaging effect on textiles. So we worked with our scientists and an outside consultant who specializes in museum environments uh, to come up with a solution. And I'm pleased to say we did come up with a pretty good one. Uh, We were able to create microclimates inside the cases using silica gel conditioned to 40% relative humidity. Uh, Silica gel are those little packets that you'll find in, you know, your shoe box when you buy new shoes. Mm-hmm. Um, that actually helps modulate rapid shifts in humidity that occurs with fluctuations in the outside temperature.
0: Oh, interesting.
2: Yeah. So we were able to control the humidity pretty well, but uh, we knew we would have a harder time controlling the changes in temperature, uh, especially since the exhibition is open during three seasons, spring, summer, and fall. You know, in an ideal world, we want to keep the temperature around 70 degrees, but that would have been impossible. And so, again, we obtained permission from the lenders to show their objects under these circumstances. And similar to the monitoring we are doing in the St. Game Cloister with the Valentino gowns, we are collecting real time data to better understand what is actually going on inside the vitrines that are placed outside in the Kusha Cloister. We actually have loggers placed on the mannequins themselves underneath the clothing. And we can access them with our phones using Bluetooth. Wow! Yeah, it's pretty great. I'm pleased to say that the silica gel is working really well and keeping the humidity at a safe and stable level.
0: Wow, this is all very fascinating. And just not something you consider when you see these garments. No. (laughs) In person. (laughs) Um, So my absolute favorite pieces on loan from the Vatican were these 19th century dalmatics given to Pope Pius IX. And they are so beautiful. They are entirely covered in the most delicate hand embroidery I've ever seen. And then you read the didactics, and it turns out it took 15 women over 16 years to complete. Yeah, I've never seen anything like these. And they're displayed in a way in which you can really get up close to the object and observe the hand craftsmanship. But this is not the only craftsmanship we are seeing or not seeing. The work your team put into mounting these historic pieces Is incredible. Can you please talk about the analysis, conservation, and mounting process for these very special pieces, starting with the fact that you yourself went to the Vatican and into the archives? This is so cool. Oh, yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it was, I mean, a chance of a lifetime. Tell me. I
0: always had to be like, pinch myself.
2: I was extremely fortunate to be able to travel to the Vatican to view the objects uh, we were going to borrow. Uh, I went at the same time as Katerina Jeb; uh, She's the photographer for the catalog. And if you haven't seen the catalog, I really encourage you to look at it. She uh, actually was scanning the garments, holding up a scanner. Um, and just as an aside, I did do an analysis with our scientific research department to determine that this scanner was emitting safe levels of light. <laughs> <for> <laughs> Always <these objects>. working. <laughs> um, <laughs> But it was an amazing experience being locked into the sacristy of the Sistine Chapel. Um, you literally have to go into the Sistine Chapel and then you take a door off of it and there you are with this incredible collection of objects that are still in use by the church. So this oh, is different wow. from the museum. This is the sacristy collection. Unfortunately, my time there was very brief. uh, And so I had to be very focused on what I was trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. And so my goal was to first view every object, quickly assess its condition and whether or not it had to be treated uh, before it would come to us. I measured each object to... um, make sure that we could potentially like pre-build a mount before it arrived. You know, when it arrived at the museum, we only had um, a very short time to mount them. And so I knew that we could kind of preload a lot of the work if I could get the right measurements. Mm -hmm. Um, So I viewed everything, conditioned it briefly, measured it. And then um, I also answered any questions that are curators might have had regarding a specific technique or material. I was in and out very quickly. Um, I wish I could have stayed, but had work to do. Um, And so after I returned to the lab, then our team created a plan for mounting the objects that could be executed quickly, safely and kind of in a modular way so that the objects really appear as if they're just floating Mm -hmm. on this pole and uh, the mounts are completely integrated into the objects. Uh, They hopefully are invisible. And, you know, I'm not going to give away all of our secrets, but (laughs) uh, (laughs) uh, it is safe and it is beautiful. And it was a pretty simple system that we actually ended up using.
0: Yeah. And um, so there are those dalmatics. There's some beautiful copes. um, There are also this room that is full of tiaras on display. um, One of which in particular was a gift from Queen Isabel II of Spain to Pius IX in 1854. Yeah. And it was given as a sign of respect and devotion. It's composed of owe a mere 19,000 precious stones, (laughs) (laughs) the majority of which are diamonds. Um, And when I first saw it, I remarked that it was impressive that the lappets hanging down the back were stiff enough to hold themselves out, to which you pointed out that actually they were not holding themselves out. There is a mount constructed so meticulously The color matches the lining so precisely that it is indistinguishable.
1: Yes,
2: yes. Again, our work is only done well if you don't notice what it is that we're doing. It's incredible. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The lappets are really heavily jeweled and embroidered. And we were worried about them dangling without support over the course of the exhibition because we didn't want them to tear at the connection points because of the cumulative effects of gravity. Uh, So for the tiara and miter mount specifically, we purchased fabric that matched the lining of the lappets so that we could disguise the mounts. And then we worked with our colleagues in our objects conservation department. Uh, Remember, these are the same colleagues who helped us install the mannequins flat. They specialize in mounting 3D objects of all kinds. Um, They were responsible for mounting pretty much every object in that entire gallery, including all of the amazing rings, jewelry, pectoral clasps, everything. And so in working with them, we were able to devise this mount that we felt safely stabilized and supported the lapids while Mm -hmm. completely disappearing. And so what you see hopefully when you go in is just the object, not our work.
0: Absolutely. Uh, And it's stunning. It is just an incredibly beautiful exhibition. So
1: congratulations to you all. Thank you. Yes, congrats, Sarah, to you and your team. The show is really incredible. And so is Sarah, April.
0: She is such a rock star in our field. Did you know that she is actually currently getting her PhD at Bard as well, studying theory and practice of fashion and design conservation? She also curated an exhibition at the Met last year called The Secret Life of Textiles, Synthetic Materials. And she has quite literally brought a face to her profession in a way that just did not exist before, and might I just say that she herself is incredibly stylish?
1: Is it weird that I want to be her when I grow up? <laughs> I think you already are, just in a different way. <laughs> um, yeah, and and she's she's really wonderful, also because she gives so much credit to each and every individual on her team and other people within the department. And you can see some of the work that Sarah and her team do in quite a few videos. And we will provide links on our website, which is dresspodcast.com, where you can also find links to some of her written work as promised earlier.
0: And do not forget our conversation with Sarah continues on Thursday in a special bonus mini sode where we discuss the work that was happening when I got a special opportunity to pop into the Mets conservation lab. Sarah has really provided us all with an eye-opening behind-the-scenes treat, and I hope dress listeners that this will give you a new insight. An appreciation for the team of skilled professionals behind each and every exhibition you visit. But also something new to consider next time you get dressed. Catch you on
1: Thursday. We'll post images of Sarah and her team at work on our Instagram, which is at dressed This is also our Twitter handle. You can find us on Facebook at dressed podcast without the underscore. And we love hearing from you all. So please write to us at dressed at howstuffworks.com. And don't forget about our merch store, which
0: you can find at tpublic.com forward slash dress. That's tee forward slash dress. Check out the new designs we just added. And as always, thank you to our producers, Holly Fry, Casey Pegram, and everyone else at How Stuff Works that makes the show possible each week.